My first task. Report to my immediate superior. Give him a feel for what little hope I have of revitalizing the people here. I'm no god. These are a traumatized people. Those who have witnessed this from a distance are never coming back. I'll tell him that all attempts at restoration would be in vain, that henceforth this city belongs to the desert that surrounds it, that the men are likely to better take up residency in the mountain. I have an aunt in the mountain, very close to here, perhaps even my mother. I won't go to see my aunt or my mother while I'm here. I'm not going to move a muscle. I can't do anything right now. I can't wrap my head around what task must lie in front of me. I have an office, an old garage. There I've scrounged up four chairs, two tables, a wire mesh fence, some dossiers, a typewriter and a calculator, a portrait of the deceased king and the one of the living, a broom, a galvanized bucket, a Spontex sponge, a feather duster, MAB 7mm caliber pistol, 38 bullets, etc. My office is located in the middle of a wasteland strewn with shards of bottles and other detritus. In summary, this is all it is. A parallel piped about eight meters long, three meters wide, and three and a half meters high. It doesn't have a glass door, but instead a rather rusty metal shutter, very difficult to pull down. I've hired out a shaouche to do it. He's also required to make good on every request I have to be present when I'm absent. I told him that I wouldn't be keeping an exact schedule, that I may very well leave the work in abeyance, and that he would be obliged to remain there constantly. That was Marsha Lynx-Quayley reading from Mohammed Khereddin's Agadir. This is Ursula Lindsay. This is episode 67 of the Bulak podcast. I'm coming to you from Amman, and Marsha, as always, is in Rabat. And uh, we're going to be talking about this new translation into English of the Moroccan writer uh, Mohamed Khereddin's kind of undefinable text. I don't. I, I'm not going to call it a novel. Um, uh, which is, he said it was a political essay, which is at one point apparently. And um, I think Omar Brada called it a hybrid novel play. I, I think you could call it all kinds of things. Yeah, I mean, it's an, a, a very um, complex kind of accumulation of different genres. There's theater, there's poetry, and it's beautifully translated, I think, by uh, Pierre Joris and Jake Siersak. I, mm. I hope I'm pronouncing their names more or less correctly. <laughs> um, uh, I, I mean, it reads very well in English, and it's it strikes me as it must have been quite a challenge to translate because um, it's a it's a language that in the original French, I mean, is is intentionally kind of mold breaking, you know, revolutionary and rebellious in in trying to say everything kind of in a in an original way. Um, and uh, as the, the I should say the the excerpt that you just read in the beginning, the premise of the, of the of the book is uh, we're hearing from a narrator who has been sent to the city of Agadir in Morocco, uh, which is a city that in 1960 was struck by an earthquake and like almost entirely destroyed, and then and then rebuilt. Uh, and the author himself was actually working for the Department of Social Security and conducted service in the area. Um, so he he ha he saw sort of the aftermath of the earthquake. But then from that premise of a man who, an, an official who sent 
to this devastated city to uh, to gather information and to make plans. He then spins out this sort of incredible narrative uh, that is about destruction and renewal and the state of the country and like so many other things at once. Um, yeah, I mean, it's yeah, yeah. It to me that so much of it seemed like. Um, so, so this, you know, the earthquake was shortly after independence and, you know, killed apparently more than 12,000 people. Um, to me, the, the text itself, so much of it is like all these voices jumbled together after an earthquake that things come back up from underground, different time periods and different figures from, from out of time rubbing up against each other, as well as all kinds of wild aspects, um, different uh, play stagings. It's so, you know, immense and operatic and lush and sarcastic and, and, and intensely visual. I, I, that's, that's a really nice way of putting it, what you said about voices, like that, this sort of cacophony of voices, like you would have in an emergency and also voices from the past reemerging. Those, those are definitely both there. He stages a lot of kind of mini plays mm. inside the text. And, and I think, I mean, he was a poet. Um, I think he wrote more poetry than anything else. And the, the text is very poetic. There's also a lot of sort of monologues and portions of it that, could be just poems. Um, there's a lot of kind of run-on stream of consciousness writing. Um, and I think he was also a playwright, and the uh, the playtexts are extremely compelling. I love reading playtexts um, and just kind of, you know, um, like Tawfiq al-Hakim said, you know, staging the play in the theater of the mind. Um, and they're they're incredibly vivid sort of short conversations right i mean they they have all these um sort of uh, characters of certain officials certain figures of authority uh, certain figures of the people um you know the the peasant the kaid the crowd um but the and the language itself was very vivid and often very funny Mm. Um, as they talk to each other. I mean, that's the other thing is this book is, I think, quite funny. I mean, with a sort of angry or sarcastic humor, but um, there were a lot of lines that almost made me laugh out loud. Um, and uh, I, I think the other thing that's important to know about the context maybe of this, of this book is that um, so the 1960s in Morocco, of course, are the are the years of lead. Uh, it's when um, it's when King Hassan II is consolidating his power uh, and surviving multiple coup attempts within the army, um, but also facing contestation from like leftist and student circles and cracking down extremely hard on them. There's a mention in the book. There's a description at one point of the of a famous riot in Casablanca uh, when the army opened fire on people. And Khereddin uh, um, belonged to a, a generation of writers that were all sort of connected to the magazine Souffle, 
or mm. uh, uh, meaning breaths, uh, and we, who are all experimental writers, like uh, you know, such as also like the the poet Abdelatif Labi, and so they were interested in a new post-colonial original. They're writing in French, but they wanted to write. Uh, to have a Moroccan literature in French, like not just to copy French literature. They're looking for a creative originality. Um, and then also they became more and more politically active and opposed to the king. Um, and Khiredin uh, had left the country uh, in, by the time that Zoufle, I think, was shut down and, and, its, and its editors, including Labi, sent to jail for many, many years. Mm. Um, uh, and uh, but I mean that's very much in the background, and there's a lot of references to the king in the text. That the, the the contestation, the like really um, conflict that's taking place between this younger generation of intellectuals and artists who are all kind of on the left, and a monarchy that is embarking on decades of ruthless repression is is very much there yeah it's a just an absolutely bright and and fierce critique of autocracy i think throughout it 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 felt like it had this kind of um you know kind of feverish fearlessness to it to me yeah i mean there is there's a there's an urgency right there i'm it's uh it's also, I would say, it reminds me of um, the novel uh, "The Hospital," right? By by Ahmed Bouenani. Although Bouenani is so much more, he's also it's also sort of dark and somewhat angry, but much more melancholic, right? Uh, I don't know if it was written later. This real really feels like it's written with fire, right? Yeah, um, and such bright costumes and colors and crazy things happening. Um, I, I, I struggle to think of what it, it, in some ways it does remind me of some aspects of Spina, Alessandro Spina, um, the, um, writer in Libya from a Syrian, uh, what heritage? I can't remember, um, in the kind of different switching between modes at, in telling the story, um, and in part the describe um, but nothing. I couldn't come up I with think, anything. I see Shrybe like much, much more than Spina, actually. Mm-hmm. I, and and again for this desire to kind of like break the French language and reassemble it, mm-hmm. you know, like make it your own, really through like really aggressive, you know, talent. Right. <laughs> just, right. Just, right. Just master it and remaster it and and say things like they've never been said before. And it's a story of an angry young man. And at the end, it ends on a note of departure. Right. Yeah, I also thought of Memmi, but but this is so insistently funny at the same time. And I think stylistically, it's more part of this really this Moroccan, mm-hmm. particular Moroccan moment and generation um, that is being very formally experimental, uh, that is really trying to say through the form, you know, uh, that we're not copying anybody. We're trying to make something new. Um, and, 
and I, I, I mean, uh, yeah, the, the issues of the magazine Souffle would also probably have a lot of work, I mean, in which Gheredin published would, would probably have other work uh, that that it would relate to and it, you, you know, you, you would sort of uh, feel like it was part of the same constellation. Mm. Um, I would love to read some of his plays. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, presumably it's all available in French, mm. um, but uh, and but the, and then the other thing that I like is he takes this central, so he takes this central sort of metaphor, but not really because it actually happened. But this idea of a city destroyed and we need to rebuild it, um, and the city destroyed maybe you know is is connected to this feeling of, you know for for him and his generation like the devastation probably of their vision of what their country was going to become i mean right. there was a moment in the 60s where like people like him in morocco thought they were just going to go the way of like egypt and you know uh have a socialist republic pretty soon like maybe run by army guys um mm. but they did not think they were in for they didn't think that they were in for a like conservative monarchy for much longer. And uh, I think, you know, so, so maybe that's part, that's, the, that's also some, one of the things that's there is this idea that like the future's gone, right? The future's suddenly gone and then you have to rebuild something. And so there's so many plays on this idea of like, was the city ever there? What kind of a city was it? And then he goes off into like alternate imaginary cities. Um, I really liked the city of animals. Yeah, that one was brilliant. I mean, I think I'm just simple, but I thought it was really funny. <laughs> <laughs> um, I could um, I could read a little bit from that Please one. Please do. All right, let me see. Um, so I don't even remember how because it's sort of hard to keep track he ends up in the city of animals. It's also like this text completely overwhelms you. You mm. read it and you get to the end and, and you, you know, it, you feel you're going to have to read it se several more times and it's hard to keep track of. Like it literally makes you lose your bearings. Yeah, absolutely. It's as overwhelming, I think, as it is itself an earthquake. Right. Um, so at, at some point, the narrator ends up uh, in, this, in this city of, of animals. So he says... Hounds or hyenas in drag, smoking cigarette after cigarette. Bistros with gorillas wearing eyeglasses, sipping on creme de mosquito. Further on up, my shadow stretched across a square of glass. Someone cuts me off, draws a bead on me, shoots at me from above. The projectiles ricochet off my hip bones. I think I see my elderly father. He doesn't recognize me. I try to block his path. He calls out for help. The pig monkey cops arrive in full force. I manage to clear a path between them. They club me, so it goes. Finally, some men that look something like me go by. They don't even bat an eye. Wait, the smallest one is motioning for me to follow him. I steer myself his way. What are you doing here, he says. I don't know. What about you? What are you doing here? Well, at the time I was just passing through, I got caught up in some old man's story about this city and I made an oath to myself that I'd find a way inside. But ever since then, I haven't been able to get out. They don't allow anyone to enter, much less leave. I forwarded a request to leave to President Marmoset, instantly denied. 
He responded to me in the following terms. You are considered a citizen. We have you down in the registry of the history of our city as an active and industrious member of the population. How could we possibly allow ourselves to lose a man so precious as you? I didn't push my luck. I settled down with an albino tarantula. She bore me two extremely hairy tarantula <laughs> children. I know. <laughs> Construction workers now. What's that? Let's not waste any more time here, my companion tells me. The Minister of Public Works, Madame Shrimp, means business. People need a place of their own where they can feel safe. No one is allowed to be out after dark. The scolopendras deployed by the government will turn on anyone who transgresses the law. We'll check out the worker's shanty later. For the time being, I'll drive you to the administrative offices. We'll make out a family register for you after you've married. You'll have your wife selected for you. You'll stand in the front of a doorway. A parrot will look you up and down and call out a name. I'm going to stop there because it just goes on and on and on. I love this combination of like menacing, but also surprise, startling. Um, and uh, and, that's and, ludic just, and ludicrous. Uh, right. You know, this kind of criticism that's so silly uh, that takes the things that are so pompous and self-satisfied and... Right. And turns them into shrimps and parrots and tarantulas. And scallop, what are scallopendras? I have no idea what that is. No, neither do I. <laughs> there are a bunch of things that I did look up um, as I read, but I didn't look up what that was. Um, and also stylistically, so that one has this kind of rat-a-tat, you know, mm -hmm. and the way it's been translated also, like, it's very nice in the vocabulary. They've almost got this like noir, like a little touch of yeah. noir to the terms. And then, you know, 20 pages later, there's going to be a, a, a literally like eight page sentence. I mean, completely different styles and approaches, but it all coheres. Yeah, oddly. I, I, I mean, as you said, I feel a little bit odd talking about it because I think it's the sort of text I would need to read at least three times before I felt confident in in saying what I want to say about it. Uh, but it, it 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 coheres in some way in its in its compulsion of its the intensity of its language the overwhelmingness of its vision. Yeah. And, and, and certain things come back again and again, like, yeah, I, I, I mean, they're like you said, this sort of mocking and criticizing of figures of authority in the exchanges, uh, um, the, the, the violence of the text, the creativity of it. Um, I mean, there's, but, but yeah, you'd, I, it's dense. It's dense. But it's really yeah, a revelation were, for me. Yeah. There were so many little parts that I took out separately that I want to think about, you know, as just three lines of, on their own. Right. Um, it, it, you know, rather than, you know, being able to stand back and look at, you know, of course, it's one thing to be able to stand back and look at the whole thing, but there are also just such dense moments Um yeah, I mean, I'm thinking, I'm actually looking at some of the more, um, I underlined, I didn't underline that much, but I underlined in one of these like many theatrical exchanges, you know, they have the characters is like the imam, the worker, the syndicalist, and there's a syndicalist who says, mm. my Lord, I cannot live without the king, without the king, I'm inconceivable. 
Yes, yes. <laughs> I just like underlined that because it made me laugh out loud. Um, but there are so many. So then that there's so many. So there's the like hilarious that that moment, and then there was this this little piece that I wrote down that I think was in kind of like um, uh, in in in. Uh, broken lines. You know, the vice of the royalties is to substitute themselves for everyone. Is to take each and everyone's place. I mean, there was so so many different things that echoed each other and resonated, even though they were written in these wildly different styles. Yeah. Um, well, so there's also a portion which I don't. I don't. I, I would definitely have to reread to. to I think really get all of it where he seems to have sort of former rulers or or mm. alternate mm-hmm. rulers of the country come out to all like tell the like criticize the state of things to the narrator um and and all sort of i think propose themselves as alternatives or just sort of rant and rave about how how bad things are now um right and kahana who's i can't remember what century she's from um who i think was a she was a emazir leader yeah i think so a, a, a queen yeah she you know she de- she declares her, right right she she declares herself a communist i mean there's also sort of these that's wonderful so, yes <laughs> that's right positions of time she's a communist and her brothers are this are serpents right, right. Um, and who is it? Wait, I'm trying to, there's a path. There's another passage I want to read. Um, and I can't tell quite which one of the rulers is speaking. Was it Yusuf? Maybe. (laughs) (laughs) It's, it's at the, it's after that passage It's after Kahena has spoken. Um, and he says, uh, happily, this land is no longer named Barbary. Now it is Morocco. But what a mistake. Now they do away with all the institutions. I have been pushed back into the shadows. I'll kill them all, I swear. They have built slums in the mud for the people right there in the hasty passerby's piss. They have made the people into a secondary thing, a tool, so to speak. You come from the people you've got to work. For, for you will never sit in front of me, you scumbag. My people, nosegay of vultures shot down by seasoned jokers. My people, hunkered down in fables, warmed by words that lay no eggs fit for an omelette. My people transgressed. My people split by credulity. My people, without owing anything to the past, compacted in my daily language. My enslaved people... My inept equal, the king, who has no name, alligator, a.k.a. iguana, fascist, impenetrable, and my people sold out for a tonnage of joy. And it, I mean, it, it, again, this also goes on for, for quite a bit longer. The, I mean, there's also just these, you know, kind of poetic rant is, is definitely a mode that's repeated multiple times. Yes. Yeah, a poetic monologue or, yes, poetic rant. Um, and I think you're right. That was Yusuf. Yeah, I think he takes these um, characters from characters, people, uh, historical figures from the past and lets them speak about the, 
the present as well. It's like all times existing at the same time. Um, and, and I like that he apparently called this also a political essay, that he just happens to use these kind of fictional and poetic forms in order to express his feeling about the, mo- the, the politics of the moment. Right. Yeah. And, and, and he has also this, I mean, there's, there's so many clever elements in it. He, he has the, you know, the narrator is being stalked by a sort of alter ego whose house has been destroyed in the earthquake and Mm -hmm. who holds him responsible and keeps threatening to assassinate him if he doesn't find his house. Right. Which, how can you find, uh, it it reminded me in some ways of, you know, people were, returning to their neighborhoods in Syria and not not being able to find where their their home was any longer but just to go back and in in a city that's been destroyed where was did you have a house where 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 was this history that that existed and this is like the whether whether you know whether or not history existed and to what extent it existed and in what way it existed is like a, something that constantly reappears through throughout this, yeah. whatever it is. <laughs> well, and also, what are you going to do? I mean, the end of the novel seems to kind of give up on the idea of rebuilding the city. I mean, in actual fact, Agadir was rebuilt, I think, at an extremely uh, quick pace. I think it was sort of a, a national project. Uh and we've both visited the city. It's this quite modern-looking uh, beach resort in in southern Morocco, sort of famous for having these beautiful big beaches, and it and it has a port, and and it's all very modern because I think it was almost all built after the earthquake. Um, I, I don't even know. If, I don't know if they changed the location of it slightly or if it's exactly where it was. But but in the story, it 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 seems like he keeps running up against kind of an impossibility in rebuilding this city. Right. Right. And maybe it's, it's a different city now, you know, maybe no city can be rebuilt or not a story, a city that had been destroyed to that extent anyway. Well, yeah. I mean, because I think it has, it's, it's, it's standing in for some other kind of project of, because at the end, you know, the narrator invokes the idea of leaving more and more often um, towards the end of the of the book, and we know that Khedidin himself left Morocco and was unable to come back for a very long time. I think because of his political associations, and uh, in a, this quite nice introduction uh, by Khalid Liamlahi, he talks about how Khedidin. Um, had a very difficult time, lived in France uh, among Moroccan immigrant workers who were called um, book was the like mm-hmm. uh, slang term, which is translated as billy goats here. It has kind of scapegoat connotation and like work animal connotation, I think. Uh, and uh, so... So he so he he left he left the country for a very long time, and and then what I thought was interesting um, was that it sort of mentioned in passing that he he reconciled with the monarchy and came back to Morocco. I mean, right, and abandoned- promised not to write anything 
so fiery and critical as this book, Agadir, again. I mean, this book is kind of inconceivable for it to be written now. Honestly, right now, I don't think you could get away with writing this book and publishing it. I mean, this book is wild, man. I I found it shocking. It burned my eyebrows off. (laughs) Yeah, I don't think you could... uh, you could get away with it. And, but did that, I mean, and that trajectory of the Moroccan writer or intellectual or Arab writer intellectual that like, is it, was so in opposition to power as a young person, like pays a very heavy price for it. And then at some point later in their career does have this kind of reconciliation with the, the regime that has, survived and and beaten them is a really for me it's a really interesting narrative arc like I'm kind of fascinated by these by these figures um and the like Abdul Latif Labi never did reconcile mm. with the regime like he lives in Morocco now in a very I would say I mean you know he's very well respected among some circles but but he's definitely like marginalized in that way that people who cling to their intellectual independence are right um and i don't think he's ever i mean he served his time in prison and 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 was eventually and maybe because he writes poetry uh and doesn't like write i don't think much else he doesn't do any sort of political commentary like he doesn't write for the press i mean they probably wouldn't let him anyway but there are other figures in that magazine also who again there there are some who never reconciled at all uh and then uh i mean tahar benjaloon also contributed to souffle in its beginning and i think he has an excellent relationship with the yeah, he's the, very the government here. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, and he gets to publish things, and he's he's very like, I would say he's a pro regime intellectual. But so I I found it very moving this very brief mention in the introduction, which was so helpful in understanding who different figures were in in the book, and I never would have understood otherwise. Um, you know, this idea that he wanted to come home. <laughs> Um, right. That, you know, he, he, he needed to somehow rejuvenate his work and that he was stalled out in France and he, and he needed to see Morocco again. I felt tremendously sympathetic to whatever it was that had driven him um, to reconcile with the monarchy. Yeah, no, I, I think so. Too. And, and I think it also mentions that he was ill at one point and the monarchy as they as they often do with sort of prominent figures took care of his medical expenses mm. um which is another way of sort of creating an indebtedness um that that is that is something that you see like across the region i think that that uh um i mean of course you know, people need for 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 the authorities to step in and and give them kind of special help to pay their medical bills because there isn't like a functioning public health system or in you know or or they're in exile or they're in financial difficulties you know uh, to begin with uh, because they've been blacklisted. So you know, it's a whole technique I think of co-optation, but. 
Right. Um, well, I don't know what I would, you know, I, what I would do for health insurance. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, it's a, it's a really, um, it's a really interesting, really powerful book. And, uh, I, 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 I would recommend it. Yeah. I mean, absolutely. I, I, you know, of course it's, it's from decades ago, but it still feels so, uh, vibrant and exciting to read. Yeah. Yeah. It's what is his style called? Guerrilla linguistic. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I like that actually. Yeah. No, it's, uh, and, and now I'm curious to read the, the, some of the, some of the other works. Although I think this is his first, I think they say it's his first work of non-poetry to be translated into English. Yes, I think Scorpionic Sun, a poetry collection, was translated to English, and maybe that's it. Yeah. Well, what is that, the 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 final line? He he says, uh, he's going to leave his country with a poem in my pocket. That's enough. Yeah. Yeah. I like that. That was it was this this sort of uh, kept going back to what what is history? What do you take away with you? I really like this line. Um we have no brothers. I'm your uncle and your father, but the bonds only exist because we wanted them to. We invent them incessantly. You know this idea of history and even our personal relationships as needing a constant invention. We decide mm-hmm. on on what our history is in a way we decide on who our ancestors are. Right. And especially at that time in Morocco, when you're just coming out of a colonial period that has, you know, as as all colonialism does, like tried to rewrite your history in a lot of very significant ways and erase parts of it. And then you're moving into like a new post-colonial regime, which is also going to very aggressively try to control the narrative of liberation and the new nation. Um, there's a real preoccupation um, with, yeah, who gets to write our history, what parts of it are being erased. Um, but it, that is, again, still completely relevant today because, because these things don't go away. Yeah, I mean, some of them are sort of the part of the essential nature of uh, living together in societies, right? Who gets to tell who we are, where we were? How do we how do we find out? You know, some of these things are erased. Some of them are gone. Holiday. When it's sweltering here, people say God has opened the gates of hell. A swarm of pentagrams has descended on the city. From palms and broken streetlights they hung motionless. Giant specimens covered dilapidated facades. The railway station, for instance, and the hospital. The road to the palace had been swept clean. The beggars driven out of sight of the palace windows. A national holiday celebrating what nobody knew. I was in a government building in the center of town for the confirmation of a declaration of annulment of a birth certificate, which I had applied for years earlier and which had arrived today from the adjoining government building to confirm the confirmation and destroy it 
along with my birth certificate. In the waiting room, one person after the other succumbed to the heat. The windows were shut to serve as clips securing the strips of fabric and the colors of the national flag that were hanging motionless from the roof of the building. The official received me with the customary mix of boredom and haughtiness, but I brushed it off. Not for a second did I feel humiliated at being subjected to his whims. I gladly slipped him a bonus for the great trouble I was putting him to by asking him to do his job, and immediately he pulled out the scissors he hadn't been able to find anywhere. Afterward, I thanked him with the customary heartfelt humility while backing out of his office. I turned and ran down the stairs, unborn. Outside, despite not existing, I was obliged to slow down. The streets were lined with barriers behind which four generations of subjects were thronged together, whispering excitedly. Although it was most doubtful he would appear at all, and wasn't celebrating the holiday in one of the other royal cities, where the same preparations had been carried out, large numbers of officers were out to ensure that should he come, the crowd would be delirious with joy and welcome him the way people would their God. And that was uh, Mustafa Stitu, translated by David Colmer from uh, Two Half Faces, a collection that came out in English in December of last year. Yeah, so we're, we're continuing the episode um, by sticking to more poetry. And uh, in this case, more Moroccan poetry. Right, right. Yeah, I actually, after reading Agadir, I had a hard time. I, I couldn't, I felt like I couldn't shift gears back to prose. So. <laughs> uh, that makes sense. Um, and uh, this is a first collection by, uh, so Mustafa Stitu is one of, uh, my understanding is, um, the most prominent Moroccans writing in Dutch. Uh, and he published his first collection, I think, when he was 19 in, in Dutch. And, you, uh, you know, there's a large Moroccan community. Um, and there are many Moroccan writers who write in, in Dutch. Um, but he, uh, you know, he has, I think, become fairly well known. And this is his first collection translated by David Colmer, who's a very prominent translator into into English. Um, and... and um, you know, I, I was struck by some of the same things, you know, just like startling juxtapositions and, um, and uh, you know, um, animal corpses and bodies um, stitched back together again and a sort of a reinvention, a constant reinvention of what a past would be. I think, you know, from Mustafa Stitu's position, slightly different um, of growing up in abroad in a different language, um, but also in trying to in, invent and find a, a past for him himself. And I, I saw one quote uh, in an interview where he said, I put dissimilar objects on the table and move them around. I then mold an anecdote around that I tell as if I were in a cafe. Hmm. And I feel like that, that kind of describes a lot of... Um, the poetry that I read in that collection, which brings together different works from his, his life. And is it, are the poems set, are many of them set in Morocco? Some of them are set in Morocco, like this one that I read. And um, 
like they seem to be largely set around Tetuan. Um, and many of them are also set in Europe among um, people of all kinds of different nationalities, you know, different religions rubbing up against each other. Uh, there's a lot of critique of Catholicism um, that's very interesting. Um, and a lot of, like in Agadir, a lot of sort of focus on animals and the lives of of, of animating animals. And an extremely creepy one about stuffing a, um, a, a chimpanzee. Oh, I think you mentioned this, that one to me before. Oh, the first time yeah, you read it. It, yeah. it terrified me. Um, okay. Well, uh, and, and what else now we're going to move on to some, so, something else. What else have you got for me? Right. You're basically okay. opening your bag of like poetry goodies for me today. Yes. Okay. So I really loved this collection, except for this unseen thread, selected poems by Raid Abdul Qadir, translated by Mona Karim out from Ugly Duckling Press, I think this month. Um, and he's uh, an Iraqi poet uh, who, sh- you know, Mona writes is long underrated and forgotten. And I, one, I, I, I like reading interviews with poets. Um, so, Raad uh, al-Qadr apparently said, "The poet used to be an angel. Now he's a coal miner." And the um, the interviewer had asked him, "And you?" He said, "I like to think of myself as the angel in the coal field." And um, you know, like Mona writes in her introduction, the, the poems sort of flip the, the binary, flip the way we see humans versus objects. So the objects become the sentient beings in, in the poem and the humans become the, the objects that the humans have a sort of a stasis and a, um, a fixedness in the poems. And she, she describes it as some of Rod's poems feel like stills from horror movies in which the objects move and the humans turn out to be ghosts. And in some ways, it's like a world that's, you know, it's like a, a science fiction world that the people are gone. But the objects remain and the objects take on this sort of overwhelming reality. Um, and some of them are, uh, are much like um, the objects are tender, this one, Windows, Windows, they can do anything, look in or out. They can notice the slightest breeze, stand still in their place, indifferent to what's happening, silent, staring, content, happy with their love stories, with the light cutting through their bodies. They enjoy this loneliness of high windows. So like each, you know, these different objects have their sort of life, um, so, so that's kind of the theme of this collection. Like, it's 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 written around the objects. It's written around the objects, but like, as if, as a kind of as a, I don't know, as as a critique, as a, you know, the world is kind of falling apart in in Iraq around this guy. He's, my understanding, he was very ill, um, and uh, some of it is like lovely and beautiful, but a lot of it is. Um, everything seems to be destroyed, but here are these objects and the life remains in the objects. Yeah, no, it does some, it does kind of um, like 
there's there I the, the quote that you read before where the translator was describing this of the of humans having become ghostly presence mm. like when you sort of create this image in your mind where all there is is a window it's like you feel something missing you, right I mean, exactly you, you, what's gone it's it's he people in there and their right. lives and their desires um yeah, the people are all kind of frozen in a way, stuck. Maybe, you know, the dead are happier. The dead are more alive than the the living people in, in the poems. Anyway, I really, it's another book that, you know, to really feel my feet in talking about it, I would need to read a few more times, but, um, but I, I was very compelled by it. I, I always feel that way about poetry. I feel like it's like music. Like you you mm. can never tell what – I mean, you can tell how you feel about an album the first time you listen through, but I can never talk about it. I, I feel like it does need to be experienced more times. Right, right. Um, I, I could never talk – I mean, I could listen to an album 600 times and <laughs> never have the right vocabulary to talk about music, but – well, I didn't say I'd have the right vocabulary, but but I just said I could talk, which is, you know, a thing I do. <laughs> um, cool. And uh, okay, what next? And then the the last pair of of books that I wanted to mention, and and I think we will talk about these in more depth. It's two different translations, or one translation, one adaptation of. Uh, the Translator of Desires by Ibn Arabi. One is out now, translated by Michael Sells from Princeton University Press, and it's it's really beautiful. Um, it it is it's a bilingual facing page. So there's a a traditional translator's introduction, which gives you um, a grounding in who Ibn Arabi was. And I really love you know there's wonderful little moments. Um, I had no idea in the it was at the Kaaba in uh, uh, 1202 that he encountered a young woman who fiercely critiqued each of the four verses of a love poem he was reciting and the experience that led him to compose 60 more poems during a subsequent stay in Mecca. And that became this book. Um, so I just, <laughs> I really like the idea of him being faced down by this fierce female critic who said, no, that's terrible. Try again. But that, that it led him to, to uh, compose this this incredible collection that now Michael Sells has rendered in um, a beautiful poetic verse in English in, in using so many different lovely um, so instead of using the kind of uh, so they're bilingual facing page so if you feel you whatever, you can return to the original at any moment, um, which I think, I hope, I, I believe probably freed him somewhat. So here, here's the original. This is not meant to be um, a crib. This is not meant to be a translation that you are reading in order to know exactly how this mm. was structured. Um, and then he, instead of using the typical tran transliteration style, the academic transliteration style, he has, you know, different accents and he, um, I just, you know, in order to give you the, the rhythm of, of the poetry, he, he uses accents in, in a 
kind of a careful way, I think that that help you hear the the lyricism of it better in the English. What um, do you mean accent? Like an accent um, in Spanish or French, you know, um, or in in you know in some say Shakespeare, you have an accent on some like a. Um, you know, uh, the little little thingy bobber that goes up from the letter, you know? Yeah, but I thought in English we didn't have them. Well, we do now. He's borrowed them. Oh. You can, borrow, you can borrow anything you like from somebody else's language, I think. I thought in English we just put emphasis on different syllables and... Well, anyway. Um, yes, but yeah. how would you know? So here, uh, you know, you could read the word naka and not know which which um which syllable to emphasize and he has naka you know just a little accent i just really liked these small uh, innovations that he put into i i feel like it's these are very tender translations um they're gentle and i i really i thought they were beautiful and i enjoyed reading them sometimes you know you read translations of classic poetry and um, you know, they feel like they're useful in an academic sense, but not very, right? Not very enjoyable to read in in the translation. But I don't think I've these. I don't think I've read any Ibn Arabi poet except maybe when other when it's been quoted mm. with within something. And I'm sort of familiar with the name, but as we were speaking, I went and googled what century he was. I just knew medieval, but I wasn't right. sure. You know, so. Uh, Yes, apparently he's 12th and 13th century. Um, And like, I know he's very, very famous, but I don't have a book of his poetry. I I don't, I don't know. uh, I I know him as a reference, right? In other people's work, probably. I've read more about him and maybe seen small quotes of him in other people's work than I've ever sort of sat down to read him. Well, soon you will have two because okay. in addition to this translator of desires, um, Yasmin Seal and Robin Mosher are coming out with Agitated Air, poems after Ibn Arabi. So Agitated Air is, is their correspondence in poems. So in, in they say, um, they call them following in the wake of the interpreter of desires or the translator of desires. Um, and so they... Um, they each, working in counterpoint, make separate translations, exchanging them, writing new poems in response to what they receive. <laughs> and it says, the process continues until they're exhausted. So, um, so you know, you can, I, I read uh, like poem 28 in the collection in Michael Sell's translation, and then in Robin's, in Yasmin's response to the translation. It, it's, it's really like a beautiful... Um, um, echoing and in sympathy, symp- sym- symphony of 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 the poetry. So they take even. You said he, uh, the first translation you mentioned, Sells takes a fair amount of liberty with the text. They're taking even more because they're they are kind doing of- reinterpretations or poems after Ibn Arabi. Although they do use the same um, um, the same base of text. Um, so it, it is like a conversation, like singing back and forth, like seeing, reading different melodies, 
um, it's enjoyable to see them all together because also Cells has the original text. Uh, so are you going to read a little bit of all three of these translators' different takes of the same, on the same poem? Yeah, yeah. So Michael Sells on poem 28, which he, he titles No New Moon Risen. Between Naqa and Laila, Ajren gazelles graze the hillsides in a covert hidden. No new moon rises on that horizon without me wishing it wouldn't dare. Nor does the bare stone desert flash without me fearing our exposure. May these eyes pour tears forever. Sighs rise heavenward, heart shatter. Slowly now, driver, my ribs burn. I wept and wept at the thought of their leaving. And now they're gone. I can give no more. And that's just, so that's just the beginning of Michael Sell's translation. And then the same poem 28, Robin and Yasmin have a back and forth. He begins, between the high dunes and the bright dinning mountain sea, the gathered tendrilled hill of sand, where in deep bush gazelles graze hidden, hooked moons lift from the rise's line, and each time, timorous, wishing they wouldn't, like a spark thrown out by the bright shoals of stones, and we, feeling this way, wishing they didn't, would tears stream, would they never cease from my eyes, would my weak cry gather and rise, would my heart crack slow driver in the spacing of my ribs the fire and now the tears with all that's led to this goodbye are gone and no eye spills even on the point of our departure and then yasmin back between naka and laila the gazelles of zatar ajra graze unseen on tangled brush no moons come over that rise my dread didn't wish unrisen no glimmering stone i considering didn't want dimmed, flow tears, eyes do not hold back, sighs beat your wings, heart crack, but you driver, slow down. There is fire in the space between my ribs, tears all spent on fear of separation, we said goodbye, dry-eyed. And then Robin continues with another iteration and Yasmin writes back with another and Robin with another. So um, that's lovely. That's really it is, nice. It's, it is beautiful. Um, I, and I think it will be a joy to have all, both collections. Well, I think we'll probably talk about that more once I get my copy. Um, yes. Um, I think that's just such a nice note to end on. We're going to wrap this up here. And I'm going to remind everyone, as usual, uh, to subscribe to the podcast if you like it. Please recommend it, share it um, uh, as much as uh, we can uh, grow our audience that uh, you know helps us make the show more sustainable further down the line. Um, and this is our maybe our second to last episode of this um, spring season. Uh, so uh, we'll try and get another good one together for you in a couple weeks. <laughs> um, and uh, it was great talking with you as always, Marcia. Thanks for sharing so many beautiful poems. Yes. Well, thank you for prompting me to read Agadir. <laughs> You're welcome. All right. Um, talk to you soon. Bye. Yes. Bye. Bye.